Well, I've, here I am doing a theme talk. Um, mm. Over the years, I, I've seen a lot of amazing theme talks, and I, I've often thought what an impossible task it is. Impossible is the right word, because it's not really a long sermon. I promise I'm not going to give you a sermon. It's not a long speech. It's not a, it's not a workshop. It's not worship, but it's a kind of, you know, incredible tapestry of some of those things, hopefully. So, it's my turn to, to be up here. And I must admit, uh, all these youth weekends I've done over the years, those, the stress of those fade into just nothingness. <laughs> this is much harder than working with teenagers. Adults are far harder. Really difficult to control. Even when you do that, they're difficult to shut up. Anyway, see what happens. <laughs> Very much. It's actually from Ireland. It's from Inishmore, actually. Yeah. Well, I thought I needed to compete with your shirts. <laughs> well, I'm Jeffs. Yeah. We certainly. I was going to wear a T-shirt, and then I thought, no, I really need to show Will. You know, need to make an effort. You know. Right. Now we're going to do. We're going to have uh, the chalice lit, and I've got some words from R. S. Thomas for this, uh, plus just a few of my own words on the theme of giving and receiving. Um, and then we're go I'm going to say these words, and then we're going to sort of very organically sing this response. Okay, you can remain seated, and we just sing it in a very contemplative way, just to prepare us for this morning. So that's the plan. We'll see what happens. So I think I believe I have a helper for the um, chalice lighting. already there. That was, who did that? Last? Thank you, Paul. Whoever that was. Okay. Thomas, some ask the world and are diminished in the receiving of it. You gave me this only small pool that the more I drink from, the more overflows me with sourceless light. In this precious, beloved community of ours, let us teach one another to give of ourselves, to share our unique humanness with others to offer the love we have crafted in our lives freely to each other and to learn to receive and to welcome in the love and support from others with an open heart and through stillness and silence through our tears and our laughter through creativity and through being to make sense and find holiness in these extraordinary lives of ours full of giving and receiving.
<coughs> I've got a story. I've got a story from Burma. Um, now, b- before I start telling it, I wonder if anyone's had any dreams this week. Because I always think um, the Nightingale Centre is great for one's dream life. Often, I think, I get some really interesting ones up there. Anyone uh, had a, quite an interesting dreamy week? Yeah. I also say I had really good ones this morning because as Ned woke me up, I put his arm on my shoulder. He woke me up from a dream which they'd made on your birthday cake but forgot to cook our dinner. (laughs) 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 Wow. Sounds like a very powerful dream, though. (laughs) Sorry. Any other ones? I drew out on a pirate ship and people were running after me and then a man came up to me and stole my phone so I sat on the floor and cried like I was dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one to look at later. I think. <laughs> <laughs> any others? Did, any dream? Do you have any dreams? No, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know that feeling. When you wake up in the morning, you kind of know you've been on real adventures but you just can't quite remember any. Um, I had this dream last night of a, of a dog um, Sort of having a wrestling match with a snake. I hope there are not too many psychotherapists out there. (laughs) Anyway, so this this story, um, there was uh, a poor woodcutter, okay, and he lived uh, very, very poor, and he lived uh, in a hut uh, in the woods uh, with his family, and they hardly had anything, really. They you know, life was a struggle. Life was really, really hard just to get enough food to survive, really. And uh, he had this reoccurring dream. He had, do you know what a reoccurring dream is? Yeah, yeah I often go. It's when you kind of keep getting the same dream coming back. And he kept dreaming of this beautiful tree right in the middle of the forest. This huge, towering, stunning tree. And right at the base of the tree, there was this hole. And in the dream, he kept seeing this very friendly, smiling tree spirit, or tree fairy. He didn't really know anything about tree fairies. He knew a lot about felling trees. He was very good with wood. So that's why he was so surprised to see this beautiful tree fairy in his dream. And there was something about every time the tree fairy smiled at him. And he woke in the morning with this smile on his face. So he decided to try and find this tree fairy. So he went off the next day right into the centre of the woods. And he, f- and it, he took a long, long time. It took hours and hours and hours. But finally he found the tree in the dream. This beautiful, magnificent oak tree. And sure enough, right at the bottom of the tree was this hole, and it looked like a little home. And he knew that that was where the tree fairy lived. But he didn't see the tree fairy, because they're very shy creatures. They only really come out at night, in the moonlight, or in dreams. But he thought, what can you do for the the, um, tree fairy? And he thought he'd leave the tree fairy a little present. So that morning he he went and picked some daisies and he made a little daisy chain. And again, he had quite big wood cutting hands. He wasn't very good at making things like that. 
but he did make a beautiful little daisy chain and he put it just in the hole. He just left it there as a present for the tree fairy. And he thought, well, you know, he thought nothing of it. So he went back to his little hut and then the next morning he went back to that tree to find the daisy chain had been taken. And he didn't really know whether it was wild animals that might have taken the daisy chain or whether it was the tree fairy. But he thought he'd make another present. So this time he collected some, uh, some moss and he made a little box out of wood. He made a little kind of little bed, like a little matchbox almost, with a little bed in there. And he made a little figure. And each day he made some really lovely little presents using things like cobwebs, bits of twig, bits of leaf, bits of flower that he could find. Beautiful little presents. He didn't tell anyone about it. He didn't tell his family because he thought his family would just laugh at him. He did this for several weeks, always leaving a little present, and then only to find the next day the present had gone. It had been taken, received by someone. And then one day he went back to the tree to find three golden eggs. They shone a lovely gold light. And he thought he was overjoyed. He knew he wouldn't have to worry for the rest of his life about making ends meet and to feed his family. And he realized that the tree fairy had given him these three golden eggs. Not just one, but three golden eggs. So he picked them up, he was really excited, and he ran back towards his hut. And he was running so fast that he carelessly dropped one, just on the ground. And before he could pick up the egg, a bird swooped down from the sky, took the egg in its beak, and just flew off. Maybe a magpie, they're a bit like that. <laughs> he had two left, so he wasn't too worried. Two golden eggs is still amazing. And, you know, two golden eggs you can probably retire for the rest of your life on. So he kept going. But it was a hot day and he saw a stream and he, he was really sweating a little bit. So he went to the stream. Uh, he didn't do any wild swimming. That's, that's not that story. <laughs> he went to the wild stream and um, he thought he'd just pack a little bit of water. Have you done that when you get hot? It's really nice to take just stream water like that. You just put it over his head just to cool his, his face down. So he did that, and of course, while he just he put the golden eggs just on the side of the stream as he did that, and of course, one plopped into the water, plop, and a big fish came up, ate the egg. Well, that was the end of that egg. But anyway, he had one left, and of course, in those days, even one egg, he was still a rich man. So he ran back to the hut, and he told his family that he'd received this one golden egg. He didn't say anything about the other ones. Wow, this one golden egg I've got, he says. One, but it's still good. They didn't realise that there were other ones. So that night they had a big celebration. And they knew because, you know, one golden egg is really special. Massive celebration. But what happened was they got, they had some neighbours who lived just a little, a few trees, sort of along, you could say. A few trees along in the woods. And the neighbours heard this amazing celebration. And his neighbours were jealous. And they thought, well, they're having fun. That's the really poor family. They're the woodcutting family. 
They shouldn't be having fun. They're poor. So they thought, well, I have to do something about that. Now, what happened was when they went to bed, when he went to bed, he thought he, he needed to put the egg in a really safe place. He didn't have a safe. So he thought he'd put it in a rice jar. He had some jar just in the kitchen with some rice in. So he just put the egg in there. And he thought that would be quite a good place for safekeeping. No one's going to look in a rice jar, are they? You'd only look in a rice jar for rice, not for an egg. Not, certainly not a golden egg, anyway. So he thought that was a safe place, and he went to bed. Now the neighbour, in the middle of the night, decided to come up into their hut because they wanted to investigate what all this happiness was about. Happiness and joy. So the neighbour popped in there, looked around, and the neighbour saw the golden egg in the rice jar and stole it and went off into the night. Now the next morning the woodcutter was so happy, he woke up, he still felt, still very happy. He went down to the kitchen only to find that final golden egg. Gone. Gone. And he couldn't believe it. How could he have gone from being so rich with three golden eggs to having no golden eggs? He felt so ashamed. So that day he went straight to the tree <coughs> to say sorry to the tree fairy. And he broke down with tears because he was so, so sad and so guilty that he'd been so stupid with not really looking after the eggs properly. So he just had a little cry at the foot of the oak tree. <coughs> and of course the tree fairy wasn't there because he never really saw the tree fairy, only in his dreams. He cried a bit and said sorry, and he slowly walked back to his hut. On the way back, he thought he may as well pick an apple, because he was a bit hungry. So he went up an apple tree, and he reached for, the, for an apple, and just as he reached for it, he noticed there was a bird's nest there in the tree, and he saw one of the golden eggs in the bird's nest. So he took the egg, he got back down. And then he walked back down to the hut and one of his sons was cooking supper. And one of his sons had, had caught a fish that day in the local stream. <laughs> and just as he walked into the kitchen, his son got a knife and was just gutting the fish and preparing it, only to find a golden egg slipped out of the fish's belly. <coughs> so he had two golden eggs. And that night, they had a massive celebration, as you can imagine, even bigger than the other one, because they were receiving beauty again, having lost everything. Now, the neighbour heard this massive celebration and thought, hang on a moment. They were celebrating over this golden egg the other day. We've now got it. Why are they happy? They shouldn't be happy anymore. And the neighbour felt really jealous of their joy which sometimes happens in life, doesn't it? Being jealous of others' joy. And so the neighbour thought, well, if they're having all that joy and they've got nothing, then why am I miserable with this egg? So the neighbour crept in, in the middle of the night, into the kitchen and put that egg back in the jar and scuttled off again. And the next morning, the woodcutter woke up, went downstairs, 
found the egg in the rice jar. He cried again, this time from joy. And he had his three golden eggs once more. And that family never had to struggle for the rest of their lives. And they lived happily ever after. Let's sing, um, let's sing a hymn, shall we? Uh, we've got this hymn, which is Enter, Rejoice, Come In, which is number 33 in the Purple Book. Number I love that story, and it's uh, a little, it's quite, un- I think it has so many meanings. I think we could, we could look at that story and, ex- and explore it for probably weeks. But one thing I like about that story is the way the wood, it's about the kind of changing fortunes of life. And in a way, I think Danny's story is quite similar. Uh, it kept changing, didn't it? And there are some, definitely some similarities. But the way in the woodcutter, the, with the woodcutter, he starts with nothing, he receives beauty, loses everything, and finally gains riches again. And he has to somehow work out how he's going to cope with that. We see his changing fortunes through struggle, magic, loss, shame, grace, joy. 
And I think many of our lives are like this. During the week, we've been privileged to hear the stories and the witness of our theme speakers, all exploring the theme of change in their unique ways. We've had Danny's powerful story of being asleep and lost and then being awakened, and he's not done with his changes like all of us are not done with our changes. And the story he told us about trying to view changes with grace and not labeling them as good or bad, but just being with the change and seeing how things happen, pan out. We had Colleen's eloquent journey through different faith traditions to find her home in Unitarianism, listening to teachers and truth sayers along the way and finding treasure in unexpected places. We had Jeff's beautiful exploration of queerness and the search all of us have to find the holy in our strangeness and in strangers around us. And Maria, I don't think I can paraphrase what Maria said in a few neat sentences, um, but Maria, shared so much, her thoughts beyond feminism, I thought, and her call to live in a society in which all human beings, regardless of gender, can flourish, and finding the balance between the right of the individual to explore faith freely, but also preserving the community and preserving the faith and thinking of the, the whole as well. And also, it was fascinating to hear Maria's part in the long path for same-sex marriage in Transylvania. And uh, in typical youth event, uh, youth programme tradition, I'd like to clap our theme speakers, but we're going to do it not like that, but like this. Can we do that? And thank you for all your love and energy you put into your words. So, I don't know what I'm going to say in response. No pressure. <laughs> so, this changes everything. All this change we experience in these extraordinary, unbroken, and blessed lives of ours. How do we find the stillness and equilibrium and solid ground to make sense, to honour our times of metamorphosis? Well, this morning I thought it would be really good to explore ritual, the way we use rituals. So, I hope that sounds like a good idea. So we're going to look at rituals. And I'm going to start off in a moment by exploring what rituals are and how they can be life-changing. And there's also going to be a little bit of time for you to think about the rituals you've experienced in your life. What were they like? Were they healthy? Were they life-changing? Were they affirming? Were they tricky? Were they awkward? Were they foisted upon you? I think we all have different responses to some of those rituals we've experienced in our lives. I'll talk a little bit about the rituals in my life that I've experienced. And then we might, I think we're going to have a little bit of time at the end to think about a ritual in the future we might want to do in our life. 
So that's some of the thing we might do. So before, I thought the best thing to do to start would be when I say that word ritual, so that's that word, ritual, I just wonder what comes into your mind, what, what images, when you hear that word ritual, what comes into your mind? So it could be a word, could be a, I mean, maybe not a sentence, <coughs> my writing's not very good, not very neat. Maybe just a word or any, any words that come up in relation to that word, ritual. And if you just call them out, and I'll just put a few of them up. Return. Return. Meaning. Meaning. Is that right? Meaning. Sacred space. Acclamation. Intention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down. Um, I, I had intention, I heard. Change. Uh, there was another one I didn't pick up though. Acclamation. Was it acclamation? OCD. <laughs> yes. Sacrifice. Glad you said that. I'm going to come to that. Actually. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Theatre. There was one here. Water trough. Water trough. <laughs> 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 yeah. We'll come to that later. Hmm? Objects. Objects. Non-utilitarian. <laughs> <laughs> 
Would you like to uh, unpack that, please? <laughs> so it wouldn't be a degree course that would be funded. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's one for the afternoon conversation, I think. Right. There are probably more. There are probably tons more. Uh, is there anyone here who absolutely has to say one more? Otherwise, they'll feel left out for the rest of the day. <laughs> Good. So we will be covering that in this morning. All of those. <laughs> so that's. It's really useful for me to hear what you said there. Yeah, some really good words there. Great. Now, I've got this, there's this book I've been reading uh, called Passages of the Soul, and it's by James Roos Evans. Uh, And it's all about rituals, and it's a really good book. I would recommend it. And he talks about different kinds of rituals. He says there are those rituals that we have kind of in the morning at different times of the day to get us through our daily life you could say how we get up in the morning how we work how we go to sleep habits that work well for us ways of imposing some kind of order that were on a world that would otherwise be chaos ironing shirts I don't think I did a very good job this morning <laughs> but uh, when I'm in London I often iron a whole batch of shirts on Sunday nights for some reason ready for the week so that's a kind of ritual you could say and there's something that actually it might seem really superficial but some of those kind of very daily things that we do um, can be actually quite grounding in their own way and then there are the rituals of being in the pack and a member of this society or a society Rituals to do with identity, rituals of dress, dating, the office, of the armed forces. Uh, At the school where I was teaching in London, there were loads of kind of daily rituals they did. How they greeted a teacher when they came into the classroom. Um, How to put hands up, how to queue up, those kinds of things. And then there are other kinds of rituals that mark and affirm the changes in our lives. Classic rituals that place the individual in a larger context. Birth, puberty, marriage, death. They bring us into connection with the fibre, the ground of our ancestors. Who have also experienced those major landmarks in their lives. He says, all true rituals mark a transition from one mode of being to another. Working a transformation within the individual or community at a deep psychological, physical and spiritual level, resulting in an altered state of consciousness, a journey of the heart, involving a sea change into something rich and strange, as Shakespeare wrote in The Tempest. A sea change into something rich and strange. I like that phrase. And Bani Shorter, in her book on women's initiations, called An Image Darkly Forming, observes, ritual is a collective or individual attempt to conjure up or reawaken those deeper layers of the psyche which the light of reason and power of the will can never reach and bring them back to life. Um, there's There's a researcher 
um, an anthropologist called Arnold von Gennep, who studied traditional rites of passage in many different tribes. And he, he's really given his life to this study. And he says there are three main stages of traditional rituals. He says the first is the ritual of separation, involving washing and purifications, aimed at separating the individual from his or her former life. This is followed by the central stage, in which the initiate may be hidden or exposed to danger or the elements. Among the Hopi Indians, a boy is taken into the kiva, an underground womb-like cave. The individual is stripped of all familiar associations and inducted into the spiritual context of their clan or tribe. Van Gennep has named this as the liminal state, drawing upon the Latin word limen, meaning threshold. The initiate crosses over the threshold from one stage of life to another, and once crossed, he or she can never return. The concluding stage is one of incorporation and reconnection, enabling the individual to enter society in a new basis, on a new basis. Now, James uh, Roos Evans goes on to claim that in the West, in the West, with all our changes um, that we have to face, affirming rituals are dying. We're doing less and less of them, he would say, as a society. Harvey Cox, uh, the American, he says, I believe that as a culture we are ritually out of phase. We are dragooned into rituals that mean little or nothing to us, like saluting flags or singing national anthems. Yet we need the symbolic deepening of an important experience. He, he describes how his own baptism, one of total immersion at the age of 10, before he was ready for it, but was given no ritual with which to confront and mark his subsequent adolescence. He writes, Today in America, we have few, if any, puberty rites. Children pass awkwardly and without ritual through massive body changes and then getting hold of the family car keys. No wonder we undergo an identity crisis until we die. Rituals should mark and celebrate the transition from one phase of life to another. He goes on to observe that in Western society we have few rituals for many other transitions of life. There are no, no rituals for a child moving to a new school or a new neighbourhood or a young person going off to her first job. What rituals do we have for the ongoing, for an ongoing relationship or to mark the end of a relationship or for ageing or for the celebration of someone's life before they die? He says that many of us go through life without deep holding rituals to hold us and mark those changes. He received a letter from a woman who had done seven years of intensive in-depth work as a psychotherapist and she wrote this she said I have I've been aware for quite some time that in spite of all the very good therapy I have had there is still something deep inside me which is still wounded and controls most of my responses to the world 
that in spite of the depth and breadth of my spiritual understanding of the love of God, somewhere inside me, I am still a prisoner. Somewhere I don't know myself. There are doors inside me that are, that are shut and I want to open them or at least have the opportunity of opening them. I stand baffled and be bewildered at my own boundaries, not knowing how or where to cross. And everything, every good thing I have learned and believed up to now being no longer sufficient to see me through. I need a new knowing. That's quite a powerful thing to say. I need a new knowing. So that's a woman who's had so much, so much inner work she's done, and yet there's still something she feels is not quite resolved or expressed or acknowledged or held. And I think that's where these big rituals can really help. They can help um, us witness and acknowledge these big changes in our lives. Now, in a way, I would say it's, it's not surprising that rituals, you know, have, have kind of died away a little bit in the West. We don't do them as much as maybe our ancestors did. I think there are lots of quite obvious reasons why that is, is the case. You know, people are too busy shopping and, you know, other things. Um, I mean, if I think of the rituals in my childhood, um, I mean, the one I remember the most, which is when I, were, I was at boarding school, and my four brothers, so I, I've got four brothers, and they all got confirmed, okay? So, well, my three elder brothers got confirmed, and I've got one younger one, so he got confirmed as well, after me. So it was kind of my turn to be confirmed, <coughs> right? And um, a religion at my boarding school was, um, oh, well, I, I would need days to kind of unpack it, really. I, the religion I experienced at my boarding school, I would... I would um, probably sum up as religion at gunpoint. <laughs> I don't know if anyone here has experienced that kind of religion. It's where religion is enforced on you. It's used as a way of controlling you. And we had to go to chapel every morning, a whole school, 900 of us, whatever it was, all in our you know, school uniform. We would have to sing a hymn, we'd have to mutter the prayer, and it was muttering, I tell you. Maybe the Lord's Prayer as well. Every single morning. There was no there was no sense or no even possibility that this could be something we might have chosen or volunteered into. It was just something we had to do. And of course if we if we were if we were I mean one way of surviving that kind of religion is you end up giggling or you end up, you know, so and so you'd be sent off, you know. And I'd often get detention for giggling during um, chapel. Anyway, so it was my turn to get confirmed. And I, you know, I couldn't really question this. It was just something that was done to you. So, um, so I went to confirmation classes. And the best thing about, I still remember it now, the best thing about confirmation classes was this teacher. Um, I remember him now. He was a really good teacher. Um, he was quite young. He had a beard. We called him Jesus Nichols. Jesus. <laughs> And his name was Nichols, and we called him Jesus Nichols. So he, he, he made them good, and we had hot chocolate, and we had chocolate biscuits. So, and at boarding school, believe me, you know, that, that was really special, hot chocolate and chocolate biscuits. So that's what I remember the most. And the other thing that I did like about communion, uh, about um, preparing for confirmation, was the Holy Communion. 
not because of the imagery and the theology, I'm afraid, but it was because of the wine. Now, I don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Um, it's not that, you know, I wasn't an alcoholic then. <laughs> um, uh, it was just the taste. I just liked the taste of the wine. Uh, even from the age of 11, I liked the taste of it on my lips. It was something quite about the senses and the bread and I really hate you know when they have that wafer bread hated that the wafer stuff didn't they really horrible but I did like the crusty when they did it with bread it was nice so that was something I did like but you're going to love this so what happened was I was forced into confirmation I didn't really want to do it and you know I was very very rarely was I ill in those days Um, but weirdly enough about four days before my confirmation at, at this boarding school, I became ill. And um, I look back now and I think, oh, it must be my body just basically saying, I, don't want, I just don't want this to happen. I'm not interested in this ceremony. Count me out. So I ended up in the school sick bay, uh, quite ill, actually. Quite, I can't quite remember what was wrong with me. And I remember lying in the sick bay and thinking to myself, Ah, I've got out of confirmation. I won't have to be confirmed now. Um, but what happened was the Bishop of St. Albans, right, who was, who was uh, you know, he was going to do the, you know, he was going to um, confirm, I don't know, my whole year group. It must have been 60 of us or something. Uh, all about 13, that sort of age. He, he, was gonna, he did the ceremony in, in the cathedral, St. Albans Cathedral. But what happened was he came to the sick bay just to confirm me. It was was awful. So I had to sit up in my dressing gown in front front of my peers in the room, all looking at me. And the bishop, with all his garb, coming up to my bedside and and basically doing me, or whatever. I can't remember. And I honestly think it was one of the most, you know when people say, what's the most embarrassing moment of your life? That would be in the top ten, that one. And, you know, I sort of almost never forget, I, I left soon after, so I left boarding school when I was 16. My parents were, were pretty good. They just said, well, look, if you want to leave, that's fine. So I think that was probably the last straw, having the bishop <laughs> baptising me in bed. Not baptising me, <laughs> confirming me. So that was the final straw that broke the camel's back, really. So I think that was a good example of probably a, a kind of ritual, a rite of passage, that if it's not done with integrity, and I don't think it was done with integrity, I was kind of put into this sausage machine, really. It was just expected of me. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it did lasting damage. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Unitarian now and I'm a happy minister, so it kind of put me off religion for life. But I just don't think it was very, very useful for me at, that, at the age of 15. I have had some more positive experiences of rituals in my life. Uh, and there's one I'd like to just share briefly. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very into kind of homemade rituals, actually. Uh, and I would, um, w- I'll come to that a bit later. But in my 30s, I was going through a lot of, I had a lot of counselling and therapy. And I was going through a very angry time in my life when I was just discovering shitloads of anger basically um, and I went I remember going to, to, over to Anglesey and finding a beach near Cable Bay which is on the southwest of the island and I went there on my own and there were various things I felt really angry about so I took rocks 
I would pick up these massive rocks from the, from the, from the beach and one by one I hurled them into the sea. And I could see the weight and the physicality of the rock just going into the sea. And I would call that a ritual because it was something that helped me hold and acknowledge something big in me. And at the end of it, I felt different. I felt lighter. I felt like I'd looked at something, honored it and let go of it. And I think there is some of that about rituals. So that was an example of, I think, a ritual that really did kind of help. And, you know, I've done that ritual with a few friends over the years when we've been in certain places to choose rocks to represent things. Not just anger, but lots of things. And it, and it can be very, very powerful. Because there's something about... Because, again, the thing about rituals is, is it's something about the senses. It's something that you can touch very often. So um, I thought it would be a good idea just to have a few moments where you might want to just reflect on some of the rituals in your lives. Um, perhaps with the person next to you or someone near you. You could do this in pairs if you like. Um, and you might want to think of... Yeah, let, we'll have a little bit of silence, I think, first. Yeah, so let's have just a few moments of silence. And in the silence, just look back on any rituals or rites of passage in your life they could have been very public they might have been very private and just think what were they like for you at that time what effect did they have on you if any were they powerful were they not powerful did you do do them with integrity did you not do them with integrity? Just think for a few moments. Okay, so I hope, uh, hope something came up for you there. Um, so we're going to have just a few minutes, and if you're happy, just t turn to somebody near you. We're going to have five minutes, so about two and a half minutes each, probably, and just share anything you want about rituals.
Thank you. Um, I hope that was helpful in some way. Um, I'd love to hear all your conversations, but that's not really possible. Um, so, us Unitarians, what kind of rituals do we do? Do we do them enough? I, I would say we need to do them more. I think, I think our worship, I mean, I, we do some wonderful, we do do some wonderful um, rituals, like flower, some of our flower communions, uh, some Christingles I've experienced, um, some naming ceremonies, so we do do them, and some communions. Um, but maybe we need to do them more, because I do, I do think rituals can involve the senses, they involve the body, um, and they can really help in people's prayer life and, and healing life, I'd say. Now, on the youth programme, we have a ritual um, called troughing, and it sounds a little bit like torture, um, but we do make it very clear to our young people that it's something they do if they want to, which is really, really important. Um, and what, what, for those who wish, we take them down to the trough in Great Hutclow, which is an old horse trough. It's really, really old. Um, and when one of them, when a young person goes from one weekend or one age group to the next one, so from juniors to inters or inters to seniors, seniors, or if they age out, in other words, if they go to their last weekend when they're 17, um, then we take them and we just sprinkle some water over their head. Now, and some of them go for full immersal. Um, and in fact, just the uh, FDA that we had a few weeks ago, five days away, it's our main kind of youth week we do in August, one of the young people decided to go in the trough completely. The trouble is the water was only that deep. And it was, it was really muddy and full of leaves. So she sat there and just kind of put all this... So, my God, that is really, real dedication for you. Um, now, Dublin Unitarians have got a great tradition of their coming-of-age uh, ceremony. And I'd love to see more of this going on. Um, across, our, across our movement. And I'll just share a little bit from what Bridget Spain, their minister, sent to me about their coming-of-age ceremony. Um, I'll just read a few lines. She said, uh, I begin working with the young people about 15 months before the day. We explore different faiths as well as Unitarians, uh, as well as Unitarianism. I try to get them to set themselves some challenges to write down about a dozen challenges and hopefully they'll succeed in achieving some of them over the years. We try and get them to write down their creed, what they believe now, keeping in mind that this will change through their lifetime. On the day, we invite the president of the GA to give the address. The rest of the service is taken by the young people and they usually act out a children's story. As part of the service, the parents are invited to speak to their child. This tends to be a real tearjerker. The parents are terrific. I remember that one parent told her daughter that she was very proud of how generous Molly was. And then they do a kite ceremony. I'm just going to read the words. Uh, this, oh, I think this sounds wonderful. I want to go and see this. So this is their kite ceremony. And they do this for all the young people who go through the... Um, go through the coming of age process. And this is kind of, this is the final ceremony. And these are the words that go with the kite ceremony. Today, we celebrate each one of you as you take the next steps on your journey, moving from the security of childhood to becoming an adult. This is a wonderful time in your life. 
It is full of hope and expectation and possibility. It will bring its own set of challenges as you explore more about who you are and, you make, and as you make decisions about the path of your life you wish to explore. In a way, every, every young person is like a kite. Now we know that kites, while they are just lying on the ground, are not living up to their full potential. The breeze of adulthood is beginning, is beginning to blow, and as it gets stronger, it will lift you up higher into the sky. Sometimes you will exceed all your expectations as the wind lifts you up into the blue sky. We wish you all the joy as you experience the exhilaration of flight. In order to, to fulfil its potential, a kite also needs strings. When you saw your family and this congregation hopes that we have attached strings of moral guidance to help you stay firmly grounded. <coughs> the breeze is fickle. It can change direction without much notice. Sometimes it may stop altogether. You may falter. You may even fail at times. <coughs> then, if you allow us, we will do all we can do to make your landing as safe as possible. Take this gift, take this kite as a gift from us. Always remember to live to your full potential and through life's good and bad times, this congregation wishes God's blessing on you throughout all your days. So I think very, very moving words there. And again, you know, the idea of this very physical kite and kind of flying it into the sky. And that wonderful <coughs> book, The Kite Runner, uh, I think if I was doing this ceremony, I'd probably choose a little bit from that book as well to read. So I think that, that's a really good example of, of, a, of a ritual that they do, uh, which is really life-affirming life and powerful. And there's a few other examples they sent me, which I'll leave for now. So I would say, just to conclude, perhaps we all have a calling, even a responsibility <coughs> as free-thinking, liberal believers, to uphold and sustain our existing rituals, those rituals that, are, that, that we're proud of, and to create new rituals that can help people make sense of, this, of the huge changes in their lives, political technological, social, emotional. And find a sense of groundedness and belonging in these crazy and joyful and troubling and challenging and sacred lives of ours. So rituals can hold us, they can help to acknowledge where we've come, they can support us, in facing difficult changes, they can ground us in grieving and loss and times of celebration and awakening and blossoming. Now we're going to finish today with a kind of ritual, you could say. And in a moment I'm going to ask you, just one by one, just when, when you feel ready, to come and choose a pebble or a shell. Now these pebbles and shells come from Cornwall and uh, Lizzie helped me gather them just last week. They're fresh from Porth Leven Beach. <laughs> the pebbles are anyway. The shells we got somewhere else in Cornwall. 
And what I want, we're just going to have a little bit of silence first. I'd like you just to think of a ritual in the future. It'd be nice to think into the future a little bit. So we've thought about rituals of the past. We've thought a little bit, bit about what rituals are. So I'd like you to think of some ritual you would like to do in your life in the future. I'll give you just some examples of the kind of thing I mean. It could be a really small, simple act or gesture. It could be to mark a friendship. Or it could be a ritual to help you let go of something. Or something that you're clinging to uncomfortably. It could be to celebrate something in your life, a breakthrough that's happened in your life recently. It could be a little ritual you're going to do on your own somewhere, completely on your own. Or it could be a ritual you're going to do with a friend or a group of people. It could be a ritual you want to do in worship somewhere where you live. It could honour the beginning or ending of a job or a responsibility or a role. It could be in response to something that's come up for you at summer school. Something that has been powerful for you, that has been with you this week a little bit. So, because I do think rituals can be very good at kind of um, letting go of things, acknowledging things, or making peace with things so maybe there's something that's been bubbling away a little bit for you this week and you'd like to make your peace with that thing whatever it is it could be a ritual that involves a pet an animal something to do with your house or it could be something to do with a family heirloom so it could be any of those things really it could be a tiny little thing or it could be quite a major ceremony you want to actually create so let's just have a little bit of silence, just about a minute, to think what it might be. And if really nothing comes up for you at all, that's fine. And so what I'd suggest is still come and choose a pebble or a stone, just as a reminder that sometime create a ritual. You might, know, you might not know what it is yet, but just as a reminder that sometime you're going to create a ritual. So let's just have about a minute's silence to think in our own minds what that ritual might be. So I'm going to invite you to come up and choose a pebble or a stone. Could be something about the colour or the shape that attracts you. Or you might not know why you're attracted to it. It might kind of choose you. So just choose one and just do this in your own time in the next few moments. We'll do this in silence. And then when you've chosen it, just perhaps sit down 
and have it in your hand. And if you'd prefer not to come and choose a pebble, that's fine as well. So uh, just hold your pebble or stone or shell in your hand and just perhaps look at, just look at it for a moment. And maybe is there anything about it that surprises you or you didn't see at first? Just have a look at it. Have a look at its qualities and its colours. And I've just got some closing words just to bring us to an end. May these stones and pebbles, fragments of the vast creation we are part of, accompany us on our journeys back into our lives after summer school. May we hold them safe in the palms of our hands. And may they remind us of our immense value and place in the wild and wonderful circle of life.